Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you today. Last month, the uh, war of words between President Trump and Kim Jong-un of North Korea escalated into each of them calling each other names. Now, of course, a war of words between two people who are in conflict is nothing new. We see this kind of thing all the time. And honestly, often we sometimes do the same thing whenever we're wrong. But, of course, what makes this particular war of words so concerning is nuclear weapons are involved in this conflict. Now, this is not the first time that nuclear weapons have been available to two nations that are sworn enemies of each other. Uh, That's what the Cold War was all about. Russia and the U.S. were on opposite sides on almost every issue, and honestly, we still are. And between the two of us, uh, there's an estimated 14,000 nuclear warheads between the U.S. and Russia. Now, depending on the study that you read, uh, that's uh, enough explosives to blow the world up 10 times to 100 times over. Now, the question is, how do we get so many weapons with so much power? Well, incrementally. The Russians would add to their nuclear stockpile, and so we would respond, and we'd add to ours, and vice versa. Why, Why do we keep escalating this? Well, the threat the common approach to military threat is you evaluate the threat by numbers. So if we have 4,000 warheads and they have 5,000 warheads, well, then we're 1,000 short. We're at risk. And so you counter the threat with the word is symmetry. You add 1,000 warheads. Now you each have 5,000. Webster defines symmetry as equally balanced proportions. Now when it comes to conflict, whether it's Uh, national or national conflict, or whether it's personal conflict, the theory is that rational people do not want to die. So if you have the exact same destructive power as your enemy, it will keep both sides from going to war. It's also referred to as mutually assured destruction. If you know that they've got about the same amount of soldiers and bombs as you do, then you know you're going to get destroyed if you go to war, so you just don't go to war. So a balanced proportion of weapons is seen as a deterrence. Now this, honestly, it's worked for 60 plus years between the U.S. and Russia. But what happens when your enemy is irrational, like Kim Jong-un seems to be? Well, at that point, symmetry kind of goes out the window. Here is someone with just a handful of nuclear weapons, and we don't really know how many or what he's capable of doing, but this individual might be willing to use them against us, a nation with thousands of nuclear warheads. Now, this symmetrical approach to warfare and conflict was not ushered in when the nuclear bomb was invented. No, it is an ancient and common approach to both military and relational conflict. We know it by its ancient saying, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. The thought is behind this ancient saying is that the best chance at stopping evil is to have a response in kind, a symmetrical response. They take an eye from you, you take an eye from them. If they knock out your tooth, you knock out theirs. Now, there's two problems with this approach to all conflict, whether it's military conflict or personal conflict. The first problem is it's never over. You know, it just keeps escalating. 14,000 nuclear weapons illustrate this fact. Now, we know this on a personal level. You know, if, if someone hurts you and you hurt them back in the exact same way, uh, that almost never settles things, does it? Have you ever had someone respond by saying, oh, you got me exactly the same way I got you, good job, we're even, we're all done? 
No. They then respond to what you did in response to them by responding. They kind of escalate to the next level, and then you respond in kind, and then they, they take it to the next level, and it just keeps escalating. It gets worse and worse and worse. It's never over with this approach. The second problem is conflict is almost never rational. I mean, it's true that rational people don't want to be hurt, but how rational are you when you're angry, when you're upset? And what if your enemy gets so angry that they no longer care about what it will cost them to hurt you? Well, then you've got a North Korea-sized problem on your hands. Now, I don't know exactly how we should solve the North Korea problem or the nuclear proliferation problem, but I do know how to address the personal wars that are at the root of all the global wars. That's what I want to address this morning. Jesus tells us a very different response than the symmetrical response that we're used to. He gets at the core of the problem and, and proposes this radical response. This is what he says in Matthew 5, 38 through 39. You've heard that it was said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. That's conventional wisdom. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Now that sounds like crazy talk, doesn't it? I mean, is Jesus really telling us to, in the face of evil, just go passive? And let people just have their way and walk all over us and do nothing in response to evil? Well, some think that's what Jesus is teaching. I don't think that's what he's saying at all. If you read further, as we're going to, Jesus is describing a very different approach to the difficult people in your life. He's describing, he didn't use this term, but I'm going to use it this morning, he's describing an asymmetrical approach, a a disproportionate approach to the wrong that's done to you. Now, I first heard this term asymmetrical warfare uh, right after 9-11, 2001. That was honestly when we saw, as a nation, the power of asymmetrical warfare. That's when 19 men with box cutters killed 2,977 people on that day. And of course, the impact went far beyond just the loss of life on that day. They did an estimated $250 billion worth of damage in that day. And according to the World Bank, they put an estimated 10 million people into poverty in just the first year as the impact spread in the global economy. 19 men armed with box cutters did all of that? That's the power of asymmetrical warfare. And the question I want to address this morning and pose to us is this. If so much damage can be done by asymmetrical evil and hate, how much more good do you think could be done by asymmetrical love? This is what Jesus is talking about here. Now, love is never well-funded in the halls of national power, and it's obvious why. It's because military defense is needed. Nations do need to defend themselves, and it's very, very expensive to do that. But with just 12 disciples, Jesus started an asymmetrical war of love fought on the personal level, and he invites us to join him. Now, let me warn you, as we get into this, asymmetrical warfare takes a tremendous amount of courage. If you choose to love the way Jesus is saying you should love, this is going to take a lot of courage. It's going to cost you. There are three elements of the asymmetrical war of love. Really, these three elements are true of any asymmetrical conflict. Element number one is the surprise element. If you are going to respond to something with a disproportionate, a much smaller response, you're going to have to rely on the element of surprise. 
The element of surprise is always a tremendous advantage in any conflict, but with asymmetrical conflict, it is absolutely essential. Without surprise, you don't have a chance. Now, in conventional war, past battles are used to prepare for future ones. The assumption is the enemy is going to do something similar to what the enemy has done in the past. But on 9-11, no one was prepared for 19 men with box cutters on commercial flights. And that was because, well, it had never been done before. It was completely unexpected. Some had imagined it, but not enough people in power ever thought it was going to happen. And so the element of surprise is what allowed that to move forward. Now, when it comes to relational conflict, most of our conflicts have a long history to them. Even if it's not with this individual, we have a pattern of how we respond. And especially with the people that we've been at war with or had conflicts with for some time, everybody knows by now what the other person is going to do. This is not the first time we've had this argument or the first time we've heard these words or said these words. In fact, as we begin to get into some of these conflicts, we could, if asked, just stop and write out a play-by-play description of what's going to happen next. This is how predictable we are in conflict. We know, well, they're going to say this, and then I'm probably going to say something like this, and then they're going to do something like this, and then I'm going to do something like this, and then it's just going to get worse and worse and worse, and then we're going to, you know, walk out, or we're going to, you know, do something drastic, and then two days later, we're going to come back together, and we're going to try to patch it up. I mean, we just, we've done this. We've done this dance. We know, we know how it works, and so we are ready with our defenses. We're ready with our strategies because it's all been done before. That's conventional war. It's entirely predictable and easily defended. But Jesus proposes the element of surprise. Here's what he says. Let me read again the first verse, and then we'll go on to read what he says about surprise. You've heard that it was said, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. You know, that, everyone knows that. That's what everyone predicts. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. Already, people are, What? And he goes on to say this, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, we'll hand over your coat as well. If anybody forces you to go one mile, go with them two. Go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Are any of those responses predictable? I mean, maybe you've heard these verses and you've read them before, so you weren't surprised when I read them to you because you kind of, you knew them. But just imagine maybe if this was the first time you heard this, You'd be, what? You want me to do what? You want me to respond how? In fact, they're so surprising, they don't sound right, do they? I mean, on the inside, aren't you going, that, that's not right. You can't do that. You can't let people do that to you. It just doesn't sound right. In fact, before I can explain what Jesus is saying, I need to start by explaining what he's not saying just to calm you down so you're not all reactionary as I talk about this. Jesus, is first of all, he's not talking about the Hitlers and the Osama bin Ladens of this world, the, the small handful of people that we relegate that word evil for. Now, the Greek word that's used here in the, in the New Testament for evil is, simply means to hurt. This, Jesus is talking about the everyday garden variety of evil that we all experience and that we all dispense. We don't use that word that much, but that's what it is. We are hurting each other. In the eyes of God, that's evil. That's dark. That's wrong. And this is not saying that crime should not be punished, that we should not have a police force, and there should be no criminal justice system. No, 
It's very clear in Scripture that the primary role of government is to resist evil, to provide safety. What Jesus is speaking in these verses about is he's speaking on the, about the personal stage of evil, the personal conflicts of evil, not, not on a national stage or a government policy stage. This is not how government should be set up. This is how relationships should be responding to evil. That's the environment he's talking about here. So the question then is, how? How are you supposed to do this? What, what is surprise supposed to look like? I mean, because as I look through these examples, I've never had any of this happen to me. I mean, I've never had anyone sue me for my shirt. Have you ever had anyone sue you for your shirt? I mean, I've, I've been named in a lawsuit, but it wasn't about a shirt. I've never had anyone slap me on my cheek. I mean, I had brothers, so I've been punched in the face, but I've never been slapped on the cheek. No one has ever come along and tried to force me to walk with them for a mile. So I've got no personal experience in any of the things Jesus is talking about. But that's okay because these four that are listed here are, are not four exact things that we are to do. These are four examples, categories really, of everyday challenges that love faces. That this is the kind of hand-to-hand combat that love deals with on an ongoing basis. These four categories are the categories in relational wars that we know well. And then a suggestion of what surprise might look like in each of these four categories. Now, having read these and understood them, it will be up to us to figure out in our situation, in our relational conflicts, how should we respond? So we're going to look at these as categories. The first category starts this way. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, what category is that? that that's an insult. That's what striking someone on the right cheek meant in this culture. It, it was a challenge. It was, it was an insult to the person. It was not physical abuse. This is not saying just let someone beat up on you and, and go, go with it. No, it's not what it's saying at all. This is just talking about a personal insult. So what's the normal response when someone verbally insults you? You verbally insult them, right? You're symmetrical. You insult them right back. They call you names, you call them names back. That's, that's just what we all do. It's predictable. What would a surprising response look like? Turn to them the other cheek also. What does that mean? I think Jesus is saying, invite more input. Tell me more. I mean, can you imagine if someone says an insult to you and you say something like, you know, I, I really appreciate your, your input and, and I want to think about that. And in fact, I, I'm, I really do want to grow and change over time, and I can't see myself accurately. So if, if you can think of anything else that you could give me input on, any other things, any other flaws that I might be able to work on, that would be really helpful to me. I mean, just look at the face of the other person. It would be, you wh- what? I mean, they would be stunned. Wouldn't that be hard to pull off? But that would be amazing if you could do it, wouldn't it? I mean, that would just shock them. They, they would have no idea how to respond. Wouldn't that be better than the, yeah, well, you're this, and no, you're this, and no, yeah, the predictable, oh, I'm getting tired of this. This is the element of surprise. How about the next category? Someone wants to sue you and take your shirt. What's the category? Small injustice. Again, does anybody sue over a shirt? No, it's way too expensive to initiate a lawsuit over a T-shirt or even a dress shirt. What Jesus is talking about here is someone takes something that belongs to you, a small thing, not a giant thing. I mean, if someone sues for your business, well, you should defend yourself. But this is shirt-level suits. This is small injustice. 
I mean, we experience small injustice all the time. Someone takes your place in line or your place on the freeway. (laughs) Or someone tries to take credit for something you did. I mean, we go to war over that kind of stuff, right? And Jesus is saying, (laughs) it's a lawsuit over a shirt. Come on. It's it's ridiculous. It's not worth your time. In fact, this person who is bringing this small injustice to you is far more valuable than the shirt they're taking from you. Far more valuable than that spot in line that they just snaked from you. Far more important than that piece of asphalt that was yours and now they've got it. Far more invaluable than what other people are thinking because someone took credit for something that you did. That's small stuff. Don't, don't go to war over that stuff. Well, what should you do? What would be surprising? War is not surprising. What's surprising is, hand over your coat as well. What that means is, why don't you give them something? But they just took something from me. Hey, it was a t-shirt. Why don't you give them a coat? <laughs> Obviously, I mean, they took your place in line. Their wife must be pregnant on the way to the hospital to deliver a baby. You know, help them out. Or if not, just give them a gift. You know, give them a smile. They didn't deserve it. What they deserved was, hey, 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 back of the bus. Or a honk on the horn. But what if, what if you gave them a smile, a wave, an appropriate wave? <laughs> what, what if you gave them a, a good gift? What if instead of trying to defend yourself and say, hey, 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 they didn't do that, I did this, they're trying to take credit for what I did, what if you just gave them the gift of saying, hey, you know, to other people, you know, I noticed this person did this recently. I was really impressed with the work they did. You know, give them more credit. It's just a coat. It's just a T-shirt. Don't, don't go to war over this stuff. It just is going to escalate. How about the next one? If anyone forces you to go one mile, what's the category? Well, this is abuse of power. Because this is exactly what the Roman soldiers of the day would do when Jesus said this. They would march through a town. You know, legions marched a long way. They would come at, up, up, uh, up to a town and... The Roman law said that they could force anyone to carry their military pack one mile with them. So they would just grab people out of the town and say, hey, hey, and you'd have to come and carry the pack. They had the power, but it was abuse of power. And man, it was humiliating and it was a source of tremendous irritation for the local people. Now, to be clear, some abuses of power need to be resisted. In fact, that's how we became a nation. We resisted the abuse of power of the British crown. In some cases, it's appropriate when it gets to certain levels. But Jesus is not talking about that level. He's talking about the one-mile, one-pack variety of abuse of power. You know, maybe it's a boss that's using their power to humiliate you. Or maybe it's a neighbor that's built some kind of monstrosity, even though they have the legal right to, right next to you, and it's messing with your view. What's the typical response? Well, you hit back. You resist. What would a surprising response be? Go with them two miles. Serve them. Now, again, to be clear, this is not, hey, I'll I'll, I'll be a doormat and you walk over me and do anything you want to do and I'm not going to say a word. Now, this is the surprising decision to help them in ways they didn't ask for. This is 
taking a housewarming gift to the neighbor that just built that monstrosity that's blocking your view. And not doing it sarcastically, not even saying anything like, well, I couldn't help but notice that you were building. <laughs> you know, just be gracious and kind. Say, hey, saw you, you added on to the house, just wanted to give you a little housewarming gift. I mean, I don't know what you should do, but think. Surprise them. What would it look like to go two miles? Not give your life to them, but just, just another mile. What would that look like? And then the last one says, give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. What? Well, how, how could you ever stay in business if you did this? Or how could you ever pay your bills if you did this? This is not talking about how to respond to every single request for money that comes your way. As I said, you'd never be able to pay your bills or build a business. If, if word got out, hey, this guy, you ask him, and if he's got it, anything, he'll write it. He'll write the check. Well, you're out of business. You're out of your house very quickly, out of your apartment. Now, what Jesus is talking about here is that this statement occurs at the end of a list of three ways that people have treated us wrongly. And what this is saying is now this, one of these people has gotten themselves into trouble. And the trouble is so bad that they're coming to you needing to borrow some money. What's the category? Payback time. They've wronged you in the past, and now they need your help. So what's the predictable response? Oh, we know the predictable response. I mean, movies are written about this sweet opportunity, right? I mean, how exciting would it be for someone that has wronged you to come crawling back to you and asking you for help? What's the response? Oh, you gloat. You punish them. You, I, tell, I told you so them. You, I mean, you, you enjoy as much as you can out of that moment. That's predictable. What's the surprising response? You help them out. You give them the money. Now, if, if it's a pattern where they keep needing money because they're not handling money responsibly, then you probably don't need them to give them that gift, but pick another gift. Figure out what, what could I do to, to help this person, not punish them, not rub their nose in it, but how could I help them? Now, again, this is not a list of four exact things to do. These are examples to make the larger point of how to respond when personal evil wrongs you. Go asymmetrical. Go small. Go disproportional. Go shocking and surprising. Again, I, I don't know what you should do. But, but think. You, you know what's going to happen. See, the conventional war is predictable. You know what they're going to say. You know what they're going to do. What would be surprising? What could you do? Maybe you need to pull a couple people together that you can trust and say, I need some help to think outside of the box here. And they come up with a different plan. And then do it. Use the element of surprise. You see, the only thing that evil knows is force. That's all it knows. It hits, and then it expects, really only expects two responses. Either complete compliance, you know, yielding surrender, or hit back, resistance. That's all evil knows. It can't think beyond compliance, or resistance. And therefore, it is evil is ready to defend a forceful counterattack. It's expecting that. It's expecting a counterpunch. And it's ready to defend it and punch back. And evil is also ready to accept surrender. Those two things evil understands. But if you give evil something that it didn't get by force, well, that's 
it's left reeling. I mean, that is an uppercut that evil didn't expect. It's left exposed. You've given their evil no excuse, no cover by responding with your own evil. See, whenever you punch back, what they did to you now, you've given them cover because you've just done to them what they did to you. So there, there's no chance that they're going to feel bad about what they did because you did it back. It just it feels like then it makes them feel right and justified because it's been done to them now. But if you respond very differently, then you're not giving them cover. And you're not giving them victory by giving them exactly what they want. You're giving them something different. So again, this isn't, I'll do whatever you want me to do, please. This isn't being passive. This is, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do something that you wouldn't expect me to do. I'm going to do something that's going to leave you scratching your head for answers and asking why. And in the confusion, the evildoer has the best chance of seeing themselves. You see, what we have to understand is refusing to win the argument or the, the conflict in this situation ends the game. It ends the conflict and tells the other person that something bigger is going on than this little personal tit-for-tat conflict that we're in the middle of. And in the surprise of the moment, evil is exposed and it is weakened. That's the surprise element. The second element is the strategic element. The word strategy comes from a Greek word, strategia, which is also translated general. It describes the plans of the general, the plans of the one who is in charge. So when it comes to military conflict, there are generals. And if the soldiers under a general do not understand what the strategy is and they just decide to do their own thing in, in the, in the comp- on conflict or in the war, well, then the war is lost. The strategy isn't put in place. Strategy requires the coordination of, a, of many people toward a common objective. Now, God has a strategy when it comes to evil. And if we don't know what it is, then our actions are going to continually undermine the strategy of God. You see, in the eyes of the general of heaven, conflict represents a strategic opportunity. Here's what Jesus says as he continues on in Matthew 5, verses 43 through 47. He says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? I mean, that's, everyone's doing that. Do not even pagans do that. The word pagan simply means people for whom God is not an issue. They're running their own strategy. They don't really care what the general of heaven is doing. They're running their own show. So the question then that's being posed here is, why should we love our enemies? The simple answer is, God does. If you want any evidence, look around. All kinds of evil people are living and breathing and thriving. Why? Does God not see it? No. God hasn't judged yet. You know, someone opposes God, and what does God do about it? Does he block the sun from shining on their property or the rain from falling on their yard? That's the example that's used here. No? 
he continues to extend even just that basic kindness to them in the form of light and rain and all kinds of other things like air in their lungs and blood pumping through their heart. Now, that's not the way we would handle it if we were God. I mean, if we were the giver of rain and light, well, you'd be able to drive through neighborhoods and see who our enemies were just by looking, right? We would see yards that were dead because no water had gotten to them, and they would be shrouded in darkness. Like, why is that house completely covered in blackness? Well, they're an enemy of Bevan, and remember, Bevan's the giver of light and the giver of, of water, and they messed with him, so no water, no light. That, that's the way it'd be for us. You, you could just drive anywhere you want. Oh, enemy, 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 enemy. But that's not what God does. Why doesn't God do that? He doesn't fit with his strategy. What's his strategy? God created us with the capacity for a real relationship with him. He loves us and invites us to know him and love him, not just know facts about him, but walk with him through the days of our life in a real relationship. But in order for us to to even have the chance to love God, it has to be a free choice. I mean, love has to grow in the soil of freedom. can't be something done to keep the lights on and the rain falling. That's not love. That's coercion. So God continues to extend his kindness to his enemies in the hopes that they would come to their senses and decide to have a relationship with him. This is what it says in Romans 2.4 about this. God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And that's a strange idea. Repentance, the word repentance means the decision to turn around. Now, it seems to us, if you want someone to turn around, you, you need to use the stick. You need to punish them. And God says, no, it, it wouldn't be a change of heart. That's what I'm after. I mean, a show of force from God would lead to change in behavior. But a change in heart, well, that's something entirely different. That requires kindness, not force. And what this means then is again and again and again, God lets people get away with stuff. Now, the risk is that people will interpret the kindness of God as a weakness. And that's the risk that God has taken. And it has shaped the way people think of God. The first part of the verse I just read says this, Do you show contempt for the riches of of his kindness, God's kindness, forbearance and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? And this is exactly what has happened. That's why it says this. Most of the people in the world have a contempt for God because of his kindness. The contempt is either God is not good because look at all the evil that's going on, or he's not powerful because look at all the evil that's going on, or as most people now are saying, I don't even think he exists. They're piling contempt on God, not realizing that the breath that they're taking to say those words are a gift from God. Many people are making the fatal mistake of thinking that God's just a wimp or doesn't care. But you know, on the hope that some hearts will be changed, God takes that risk. And that's what we have to do. I mean, if you're like me, the first thought is, but they're going to think I'm weak. Hey, 
small price to pay in the war on love. We have to join with what God is doing if we're going to join him with his strategy. You see, in asymmetrical warfare, victory is not measured by battlefield casualties, but by whether or not the message is getting out. And the message of God's love requires messengers of love. And in order to get that message out, there will be battlefield casualties. Real love is costly. And that brings us to the third element, the sacrifice element. Asymmetrical warfare in any form requires more sacrifice from those soldiers than conventional war does. It demands a higher level of commitment and a deeper sacrifice. Jesus concludes what he's saying here in Matthew 5 by saying this, Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Well, that sounds impossible. I mean, is that just to discourage us? Good luck with that. I mean, no one is perfect, let alone perfect like God is perfect. I mean, God never does anything wrong. We have a hard time getting anything right. But that's, that's not the essence of what Jesus is saying here. The word that's used here for perfect in the Greek language means to complete a, a project or a, uh, a goal that, that's arrived or a race that's finished. I mean, we use the word perfect that way many times. Have you ever done a project around the house or some other kind of project? And you get it done, and it's worked out exactly according to your strategy, according to your plan. And you look at it, and you say, perfect. That's, that's the way it's being used here. Perfect. And the idea, then, is to work with our Heavenly Father to bring to completion the work that He is about. To join Him in what He's doing. So that as we respond to personal evil with surprise. Our Heavenly Father might look at that and say, oh, that's perfect. That's, a, that's good. That's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. You didn't punch back. You did something very surprising. Something that exposed evil. Oh, that's perfect. That's what it's saying. You see, from the moment evil entered into the world, God decided to respond not with power, but with love. He decided to fight evil asymmetrically, disproportionately. The reason is some of us might be rescued. If he decided to respond with power, none of us would have survived that moment. Well, we wouldn't even be here. It happened long ago. You see, the biggest move in the war on evil, from God's standpoint, was the arrival of Jesus Christ, God's Son on earth, God in flesh. That's the biggest move against evil that God has ever made. A baby sent to fight the evil and darkness of the world. It doesn't get any more asymmetrical than that. I mean, that's not even box cutters. That, that's like a baby. What in the world could a baby do against evil? And he was God in flesh, not God in splendor and power. No one saw this coming. And then in the biggest power move of all, it occurred when Jesus offered himself as a grown man, as a sacrifice for our sins on the cross. That sure didn't look very powerful, did it? It looked weak. In fact, if, if you were there, the last thing you would ever have thought is, this is the big move against evil. 
Everyone standing around the cross, mocking him, calling him king of the Jews and laughing, spitting at him, a crown of thorns on his head, blood going down, all of it mocking. Soldiers of the Roman Empire dividing his few remaining possessions amongst themselves, casting lots for it. I mean, none of this looked powerful. But it was a defeating blow against Satan, the author of sin. It was the absorbing of the punishment that we deserve so that we might be free. And now God invites us to be perfect as he is perfect. Not score 100% on God's moral test. That's impossible. But join the war against evil in this world armed with the weapons of love. The asymmetrical war of all wars. Now, let's be very clear. Asymmetrical warfare requires more sacrifice than conventional war. Conventional war requires sacrifice. Your life's on the line, but boy, in asymmetrical warfare, you can pretty much be assured you're going to give your life in the cause. You know, the soldiers that we fight right now in this war on terror, they gladly give their lives to the cause. Sacrifice is a privilege to them. Whenever I see that darkness and that hate come out of those with, with that level of commitment, I'm challenged. I mean, what if we were as committed to the cause of love as they are to the cause of hate? What if we were willing to pay, not just in one moment of final desperation, but in daily moments of sacrifice, of taking it from other people and giving something kind in response? What if we were willing to pay that kind of price on on a multiplying level? Well, that's the kind of sacrifice that's needed in the cause of love. What What it means for us is we have to die to our selfishness. That's the kind of death. I think that's harder than, you know, some big act of valor in a war. It's the everyday decision, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give up this for a greater cause. It's a death to your selfishness. In order to do battle this way, you're going to have to really, really, really care about people. You're going to have to get in close in order to impact somebody's heart. You know, this is hand-to-hand combat. This is not high-altitude bombing. That's what a lot of relationships are. You just lob words at each other. But your heart is hard and distant. You're going to get, if you do this, you'll get more bloodied loving others, but you are following the one who is bloodied for you. In Acts chapter 16 in the New Testament, we've seen an example, an early example of first-century Christians who did this. Paul and Silas were two that, of many that did this. Paul is the Apostle Paul, wrote much of the New Testament. Silas was with him for starting some churches, and they would go to different cities and just tell people about Jesus and what he'd done for them. And in this one particular city, they were arrested for this, they were beaten, and then they were whipped, and then they were placed in prison. And that night, in the middle of the night, God sent an earthquake that jarred the prison to pieces and Gave them a way of escape. But rather than free themselves, they stayed exactly where they were. And they convinced everyone else to say, I don't know how they did that, but they convinced everyone else to say. Why? Because of the life of one man, the jailer. Roman law said that if you, were, you had a prisoner 
under your charge, and they escaped for any reason. Earthquakes were not a, an exception. For any reason, you were to be killed. Paul knew this. He was a Roman citizen. And so rather than, God freed us, we're out of here, he thought of that man. He said, no, we're not going anywhere. And so the jailer runs out, sees the prison has been jarred loose and the, the doors are open, knows for sure everyone's gone. So he gets ready to take his own life with a sword because who wants to die Roman justice? That's cross, that's crucifixion, that's torture. So he went to kill himself. And Paul hollers out and tells him to stop because everyone's there. And as this sinks in, we read this in Acts 16.30. This is what the man said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? A turnaround. And his entire family. And who knows future generations out of that. Paul and Silas had been given a strategic opportunity and they fought for God's mission, not their mission, not themselves. Now, you're going to fight in this life. There's no way you can live on this planet and not get bruised and bumped and bloodied. You're going to fight. The question is, what are you going to fight just for yourself? And in the end, just be a bitter, angry person, you're going to lose. Or whether you're willing to, to fight and sacrifice for the strategy of heaven. You know, the world is absolutely starving for love. And let's be honest, doesn't it look like evil's winning? Sure looks to me like evil's winning. But you know, that's the way it always looks in asymmetrical warfare. Good always looks unmanned and underfunded and ungunned. That's the way it's always looked in the war on evil. As followers of Christ, we fight the asymmetrical war of love, where the tactics of surprise replace the predictable responses of payback where the strategy of kindness has, has led millions and millions and millions to repentance. Where we march, not alone, in a long line of those who have followed Jesus, and like him, we sacrifice, and like them, we sacrifice so that others might be loved. That's, that's the cause that I want to fight for and that I'm fighting for. And I invite you to join me. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, first of all, for keeping the lights on and the rain falling. We, we don't deserve the breath in our lungs. We look around us and we see the evil around us and we forget the evil that's inside of us. So we thank you for your, your strategy of kindness that gave us the, the time and the space for many of us to come to our senses and turn to you. We pray for those who have treated your kindness with contempt. They have come to conclusions about you that, that are not true. God, we pray that the kindness would turn their hearts to you and not to contempt. And then, Jesus, we thank you for the price you paid. I just think of the moment where you told Pilate in that trial that there were legions of angels ready to defend you at just a statement. And yet you allowed yourself to be beaten and whipped and mocked and then slowly allowed the life to be drained out of you so that we might have life. 
you took the punishment that our evil deserves. And in the greatest blow against evil, you put a crack into this dark world. And now we are in that wedge advancing that crack. I pray that you would help us to understand how we can sacrifice, what surprise looks like for us so that we might follow you in this great cause. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.